The Cozy Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots. I'm Mike McCarg. Welcome to The Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism, combining emotional awareness and critical thinking, and how that's a way forward for the world. Now, if I look especially lonely this evening, oh, it's because I am. Grace and Victory are both not feeling well, and so I'm going to be solo hosting the program tonight, but still taking your questions. So if you have anything you'd like to ask me, and I do mean anything, tonight's show is an open format. You can drop that in the chat wherever you might be watching, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitch, on Twitter via Periscope, all the streaming places in real time. And of course, you can always catch the show as a replay on Apple Podcasts or Spotify uh, or YouTube or Instagram TV. La la la. So many places to be. And of course, it does help us if you like and subscribe wherever you are watching. And we love reading uh, your comments. So I hope everybody's having a really great week. I uh, am feeling good. I'm feeling hopeful. It finally seems like we are starting to reach a point where uh, there is some hope that as a global society, we are going to beat this virus, COVID-19. So I know there's a lot of suffering and a lot going on, uh, but I'm finally starting to feel hopeful, and I haven't felt hopeful in that way in quite some time. So I'm excited to talk tonight about whatever uh, you'd like to talk about. So let's jump right into it because uh, either my or me, because it's an MI, farm girl on Twitter says, I've got a question for you that my four-year-old keeps asking me. What's on the other side slash beyond space? <laughs> okay. So the switcheroo there in the question, when you said the other side, I thought we might be talking existential, uh, <laughs> the other side of life, but beyond space is a very different question. And... Um, an interesting one, because uh, it might not mean anything. What, what this really ends up being is a cosmological question. So if we understand our universe structurally, the, the spatial universe, which has three uh, spatial dimensions and one temporal dimension, which is why we live in space-time, uh, we would understand that the shape of that universe would be flat, now, how can 3D space be flat? That doesn't make any sense. Well, the three possible options for a spatial universe are to be flat, open, or closed. And in an open or closed universe, space is not infinite. And so the idea of the other side does start to mean something. Because in a closed universe, what's beyond space is the start of space again. If you can imagine, you know, walking around the surface of a of the Earth, if you walk far enough on the equator, you would come back to the point that you began. That would be a closed universe. An open universe would have some different and more complicated implications. Uh, but in a flat universe, space continues in all directions forever, which is a big deal. Uh, that's a long way, and uh, and that means there is nothing beyond space. Space goes on forever. Now, why I said that's a cosmological question is because in our three plus one universe, uh, that answer doesn't satisfyingly answer all questions we have in physics. The three plus one model of reality don't do a good job of integrating Einstein's insights about space-time that we have in special and general relativity, uh, along with the more um, 
strange implications that we have about the universe in quantum dynamics. So without quantum dynamics, uh, we don't really know uh, how, or, or we can't make things work in three plus one. So there's other models that assert that there might be additional spatial dimensions. And in those models, it's possible that our three-dimensional space is still infinite, but that things like uh, other universes could be stacked on top of ours in additional spatial dimensions. And in that case, what's beyond space is other different kinds of space. We don't really have any ways to test that hypothesis. That's something that comes to us from M-theory, which is a way of understanding space-time. So the simplest answer is what's beyond space is more space. And as you get into more exotic, uh, less confident models of physics that we have in our world, uh, well, then you get to interesting answers like the universe itself through a black hole or other universes or realities kind of stacked on top of ours. Uh, so I hope that helps at all. Cosmology questions can be really wildly confusing, uh, so I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope that works well for your four-year-old. Easiest answer, more space. Space doesn't ever stop. There is no other side. Okay? So, um, here's a question Mike Clemens asked, because I was driving in my car a couple weeks ago, uh, back with my windows down, someone's cigarette smoke uh, made it to my car, and it made me wonder if you could potentially catch COVID like that? Well, that's a great question. We do have uh, some studies that show potentially uh, COVID transmission at pretty long ranges outdoors. Yeah, that's right. We do have some studies that indicate through gene sequencing and contact tracing that potentially, you know, in one case, someone in New Jersey may have caught COVID from someone in New York without the person in New York ever going to New Jersey and the person in New Jersey ever going to New York. And we hear that and we go, oh my gosh, that is so frightening. That is so scary. If we can catch COVID outside at a long distance, we'll never be safe again. Okay. Take a deep breath, let it out. Because even though it is possible to catch COVID outdoors at long range, it's probably possible to catch it in your car with the windows down, especially if you're not masked, that is very unlikely. When we talk about disease transmission through pathogens, especially airborne diseases, we are playing probabilities. We are talking about dice rolls, essentially. And when you get into situations like driving in your car, especially if you're not packed into an urban area, the chances of you getting enough viral load into your body to cause COVID-19 as a disease presentation is very, very, very low to the point that it's not something I personally would even worry about. If I wanted to drive around with my windows down, I would do so. Now, I would also probably consider masking if I was in a suburban or urban environment driving with my windows down, both for my safety and the safety of others. And at that point, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. You're not being irresponsible even at very high levels of COVID infection driving around with your windows down. That's not where most COVID cases are happening. When we get intense spreading of COVID-19, it happens indoors with multiple 
uh, households combined. Households are people who live together. So when you get past two or three households, the chances of COVID getting transmitted indoors go way up, especially when people aren't distanced, aren't wearing masks, are singing, are talking loudly, are eating or drinking. All those things make COVID transmission much more likely. I like to think about it in what environments, if everyone was smoking, would I smell smoke and come out smelling like smoke myself? Those are environments where the risk is higher. Um, Even if I'm not smoking, I imagine literally every single other person here is smoking. And that lets me kind of visualize what aerosol particles behave like. And so even if you caught a whiff of smoke, with the current variations of COVID-19, that wouldn't really be enough to kickstart an infection, right? Even the variants, which are much more contagious, um, many of them are much more contagious, a single breath uh, is not typically enough to cause you to get a COVID infection. Again, not for sure. We are talking about probability here. So Mike, that is an Excellent question. You're totally as safe as can be in your car. And of course, I would remind everyone a great way to not worry about your COVID risk while behaving in responsible ways is to be vaccinated as soon as the vaccine is available to you in your community. Go ahead and sign up. Okay. Here comes a question from Twitter from Seth Duncan. And that question is, do objects exist as matter? Ooh, when I'm alone and not looking at them. And then Seth references the observer's paradox and the double slit experiment. So for people, we're doing a lot of science questions tonight, and I love it. Uh, For people who aren't into particle physics and quantum physics, um, there's a strange things about quantum particles in that um, they can exist in states of superposition where they seem to occupy more than one state at a time. We also can't know um, the precise position and the precise speed and direction of a quantum particle at once. The more we know about one, the less we know about the other. So in terms of classical physics, Newtonian physics, the kind of physics we understand our world is governed by, quantum dynamics don't seem to make any sense. And when we dig more deeply through experiment and observation into quantum particles, they do truly strange things when they are not observed, like taking Uh, If they have a choice between going through path A and path B and they're not being observed, quantum particles will often choose to take path A and path B, which is not something we could imagine like like a bowling ball doing, right? There's a lot of ways a bowling ball can go down a bowling alley. Uh, But we don't expect one bowling ball will take all of them at once. And yet, we've had quantum particles do that in experiments. They take every possible path available to them. What? So then we start to think really strange things about physics, about observation. When we hear that observation causes a wave function collapse, Ooh, big words, what does that mean? All possibilities become a single possibility in a wave function collapse that happens on observation. And then we start to think really trippy things like, wait a second, is the whole universe caused by thought? Is the whole universe shaped by thought? Well, maybe, but that's not really what the physics recommends strongly. Observation in quantum physics really just means a particle interaction. So a piece of measuring equipment can be an observer, even though it's not conscious, because that measuring equipment causes a particle interaction. 
right? Our eyes are measuring equipment. They cause particle interactions. How? Photons strike our retina. And at the moment, photons strike our retina, well, they have to have a wave function collapse to interact with our own particles, okay? So this leaves a question. When something's not being observed, is it there? Well, honestly, this is a sincere answer. We don't know. No one knows in physics right now. There's various theories out there. One is that when enough particles get together, they kind of observe each other constantly. So if we can imagine if we all looked away from the moon at the same time, there's probably enough particles in the moon to cause interactions with each other for the moon to exist in a consistent and coherent way. Now, what if there was, we somehow blocked all light from the moon and we sealed the moon in a big space box or something? You know, would the moon still exist? Well, probably again, because there's so many particles. But we also know that we in experiments are able to cause increasingly large non-quantum objects, even large molecules to exist in states of superposition. So we are actively exploring the results to the answer of that question, Seth. So I want to like admit it's a great question and admit we don't actually know what happens to objects when no one is looking at them. Okay. Uh, from Shoshana Pataka. On YouTube, we have a question that says, Mike, I want to know your thoughts on the differences and similarities between attraction and desire. How can we talk about desire more? Well, I mean, I don't know if you mean in a popular context or a therapeutic context. Um, I think in, in many ways, the words attraction and desire are synonyms. Uh, whose popular usage overlaps a lot. Um, so if I'm trying to read between the lines here about where we could be looking at the divergence of the definition of the words, attraction is like when you feel um, like you just want to be around someone and desire might have like a greater um, romantic or sexual component. I'm hoping I'm parsing your question correctly. Uh, we are leaning deep into my autism here. <laughs> So, uh, in terms of understanding how people relate to, to concepts like attraction and desire. Um, so, I mean, attraction in your question sounds more companionate. Um, and desire, you know, sounds like a hunger for something, for something more. I mean, I, I suppose I desire pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I need a deeper connection with a pizza. I just don't want to sit in a room uh, with a pizza. <laughs> I don't know if you have additional context uh, for me on the question. Uh, but I feel like we talk about desire a lot as a society. I'm actually, um, I'm more interested in attraction. Um, I'm more interested in our ability to cultivate an awareness of what we're drawn to and why to make more intentional decisions about that, to have more open communication about it, to have fewer hangups about discussing attraction or desire. Uh, there's so many coercive and manipulative and exploitive and oppressive aspects to uh, gender roles and dating and power dynamics. And I wish as a society we could 
start really dismantling a lot of those structures so that it is more simple for people to communicate matters of attraction and desire to one another. Uh, and so that people can talk together about what works and what fits and what does not. And without there having to be so much um, latent concern and anxiety about those discussions and fear of rejection and fixation and all these kind of things that I find uh, more troublesome than not in relational dynamics. One of the things I've really kind of always appreciated about um, how autism spectrum disorder presents in me is the ability to uh, increasingly just say what works for me and what does not in relationship and um, and to be comfortable with what other people communicate. And if, if things work out in friendship or in, in romance, then fantastic. And if they don't, hey, it didn't work. No hard feelings. Um, that's been a real asset to me. I've been married uh, 20 years. And the ability for Jenny and I to talk on an ongoing basis about what works and doesn't work what is attractive, what causes desire when more or less desire is needed or wanted. Having the ability to communicate about that is really essential. With my friends, talking about what works and doesn't work. I have some pretty unconventional um, modes of being and friendship. And having the ability and trust to communicate those things clearly is really helpful to have it all above, above board and out in the open. So I think how we can talk about attraction or desire is cultivating trust with people. The simple matter of being trustworthy and reliable in friendship, communicating, taking the risk of being honest um, after making sure we process any feelings of hostility, of course, or passive aggression, and you know, be open about the terms of every relationship, I think, is the way that we talk about those things more. Uh, I could be wrong. <laughs> All right. Here's another Twitter question from uh, Chef Jess1234, who says, I've been having the same nightmare every day for a month. Wow. I am so sorry. In this one, I wake up at the same time in a sweat. Dark driveway, dilapidated house, trapped in a corridor that never ends. I awake as a dark shadow catches up with me. Wow, that is a powerful image, Chef Jess. Are our dreams trying to tell us something? You know, a lot of people uh, put really deep meaning into dream analysis and dream meaning, and I don't want to dismiss that. Um, but as I understand the kind of neurobiological implications of dreams and what happens when we sleep, I think sometimes we might look too deeply into the specific components of a dream at the expense of what be what might be more telling, and that's the thematic elements of our dreams. So when you are sleeping, your brain does a lot of cleanup and a lot of repair every night. That's why sleep is so important. That's why a lack of sleep uh, will have increasingly severe effects over time. Sleep is when our brains do maintenance on itself. And... Um, when we have REM sleep, that part of dream, that part of sleep where we dream, we have all this kind of chaotic and disorganized neural firing distributed across our brains, and then just like a little bit of prefrontal cortex activation, not enough for us to be awake, 
but enough for us to be aware of what happens. Our brain becomes aware of these random flashes of activity happening all through the structure of our brains. Deep brain activity, surface brain activity, left brain, right brain, front brain, back brain, up brain, down brain, all these things are all firing off. I like to picture uh, the way that lightning will fire through clouds in a thunderstorm and how those lightnings, you know, spatially appear in all different parts of the cloud all the time. It's kind of what's happening. We're a dream, and yet we're a little aware of it. So we get these random images and sensations coming from our brain, our senses, and our memories. And based on how we understand the structure of neural networks in our brains, things that we've been processing more recently and things we think about more often are basically taking up more real estate in our brains. And so those things are more likely to what? Show up in our dreams. Okay? So it makes sense that we see ourselves in our dreams, that we see our friends and we see our family. It also makes sense that occasionally we see things and people and places we haven't seen in a long time and that dreams make absolutely no sense whatsoever on surface value. Uh, or a surface examination because our brain is taking random memories and sensory information and trying to assemble them into a story that makes sense, okay? Now, when we're having recurring dreams, what's happening? Our dreams are creating neural pathways of their own that are getting reinforced through repetition. And when I, I hear a dream like this one, dark driveway, dilapidated house, corridor that never ends, something catching up with you, that sounds to me like a dream that might be reinforced by a lot of anxiety that's uh, coming to you courtesy of your waking hours. Now, why on earth would you be anxious right now? Who's not anxious right now, right? We should... Anxiety is a perfectly healthy and valid feeling to experience right now because of all the fear and anger and sadness that we have that we're having trouble processing because we're all under so much stress. So what I hear is totally normal. You have some anxiety, you have some feelings that are kind of showing up in your dreams and shaping you. And are they trying to tell you something? Probably your body's trying to tell you that you have some feelings that are deep in your brain that it's it's trying to work out. That's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that is normal and that's healthy. And right now, I just want to remind everybody, give yourself more space and more patience than you ever have in your life. We are all, every one of us, surviving through such a difficult time right now. We have either been in isolation for a very long time, or we've had to engage in high-risk behaviors to survive for a really long time, right? I'm an inside cat. I've been kind of hiding out in Castle Mike for a year now with very limited contact with the outside world, but that's only one of the stories. A lot of people, doctors and nurses and Uber drivers and grocery store workers and... Uh, you know, cleaning staff and uh, farmers and agricultural workers and the kind of people who keep society running, they've had to be out and doing things this whole time with a constant fear that they're going to get sick. And in the middle of that, so many people have gotten sick. So many people have died. All of us are under incredible amounts of stress, and it's normal that we're having 
increase in coping behaviors. It's normal that we're having more challenging dreams. It's normal that we're starting to forget like what normal life is like or what things were like before the pandemic. All that is normal. Be patient with yourself. And as we start to push back on this pandemic, we'll support each other as we try to figure out what to do with all these dreams and all these medicating behaviors. What a great question. Chef Jess, one, two, three, four. Okay. Uh, we've got a question from Enneagram. I almost said Enneagram. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we do not have a question from Enneagram at all. We have a question from Instagram <laughs> from Carmen Noah, who said, is there any science behind forgiveness and how is it best to try an accomplishment? Absolutely. There is science behind forgiveness. Did you know that when someone has hurt you and you don't forgive them, it affects your physical, emotional, and cognitive resources? So I want to I name something really quick that a lot of spiritual traditions spiritualize forgiveness and they put you on a guilt trip and they make forgiveness an obligation and language around forgiveness is used to wallpaper over all kinds of situations that involve abuse and exploitation and manipulation. And I say, let's get rid of all that garbage. Let's just get rid of it. I'm not here for it. I don't support it. You don't have to forgive someone for them. You don't have to forgive someone at all. Someone hurt you. Someone wronged you. Someone abused you. You're not going to hear me say that you have to forgive them for some spiritual reason. What I will say is psychologically, the free rent someone that has hurt you occupies in your mind hurts you more than it hurts them, wildly more. Because... When we've done studies on this, the wide-ranging effects, the lower potential for people with unresolved hurt to experience happiness, the lower potential to experience sexual satisfaction, you can literally do trials where you ask someone to picture someone who they haven't forgiven and then test how high they can jump. They can't jump as high. Like It really impacts us because we're what? We're social mammals. Our relationships are important to us. So I think it's important that we foster forgiveness for people, not for their sake, but for our own sake. There's a lot of people who have hurt me who I've forgiven for my sake. Now, when you forgive someone, forgiving someone doesn't mean what? Accepting ongoing abuse. It doesn't mean allowing harmful patterns to forgive to continue. And it certainly doesn't mean forgetting harm that has happened to you. Forgiveness means that you can acknowledge that you have been harmed and not wish ill on the person who harmed you. And that can be a lot of work. It can be so much work to forgive people who have hurt us. But when we process that hurt, we can get to a place where what? We don't wish ill on them. You notice I didn't say it restoring relationship enabling patterns of maladaptive behavior, continuing in patterns of abuse. You can forgive someone and set boundaries with them, including saying the boundary is there is no further relationship, right? That can absolutely be forgiveness. But when we forgive people, it does help our bodies and our brains to recover from the harm that happened to us, okay? So... Um, Carmen Noah, thank you for 
just such a good question. And one that, uh, you know, we all, uh, we all could think about. Okay. Another question from Instagram from Anthony, uh, who says, uh, how do Christ and aliens work? Did God make aliens? Do they have their own story? Well, I mean, you know where I'm going to go with that. If you've read my book, Finding God in the Waves, what do you mean by God? <laughs> because, you know, if there's billions of people on the earth, there's twice that many ideas of who or what God is. Um, and so, you know, I think this framing this question is really going to come down to each person's individual theology and their understanding of who or what God is. The fact that you said Christ places your question within the Christian tradition for me. So I imagine you have uh, somewhere between a, a, a strange monotheism called the Trinity um, or some kind of panentheistic conception of God where God effectively has some degree of personhood and agency and an active role in the creation of the universe, as well as its ongoing reconciliation to core components of all Christian theology. Uh, and you are a person who believes it's possible life may exist on other worlds. Uh, if both those things are true, then you would have to it would have to follow that God also made aliens, I think, unless you you know if you have a God of each planet or something, which why not knock yourself out? Sounds fun. <laughs> um, if aliens exist, and I think they probably do, given a spatially infinite universe, I don't presume to know anything about them or what their relationship could be like with whatever created our universe. Um, how I navigate uh, Christ and the Christian story is deeply personal to my life. I don't actually even make any assumptions about what Christ means to anyone else. So it's too much of a stretch for me as a deeply personal and mystically oriented Christian to imagine uh, you know, what Christ could mean to aliens other than my understanding of Christ is an invitation into reconciliation for all things. And so that would mean that invitation certainly applied to aliens as well. My apologies to anyone, by the way, watching. And I know there are a lot of you, probably most of you who don't identify as Christians or, or take an active role um, in the Christian tradition for a little inside baseball talk there on Christ and aliens. I, <laughs> and also a confession that I don't know what inside baseball means. So <laughs> I don't follow sports. Uh, anyway, it's uh, that time of the program where we want to keep the lights on. So uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsors. just wouldn't be possible without the support of our sponsors. I'd like to tell you about some really great partners of the Cozy Robot Show tonight. The first is KiwiCo. KiwiCo is a company that creates accessible, hands-on projects for kids of all ages, including adults like me, to make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. You may have also heard that abbreviated STEAM. The way it works is you sign up and then they send you a crate every month. What's a crate? It's a little box full of stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, it depends on which line you sign up for because KiwiCo has different lines of crates that are more devoted to science and engineering or more devoted to art or a balance of the two that are also appropriate for people of different 
ages. And when that box uh, arrives every month, it's going to have everything you need, all the supplies for that month's projects. You don't have to run to the store or hop on a web browser to order something that was forgotten. And they have detailed kid-friendly instructions, creating a sense of independence and ownership in learning, including an enriching magazine filled with content to help you learn even more about that crates theme. I absolutely love getting KiwiCo boxes in the mail every month. It's a great way to kickstart spring break, knowing that your kids will have a package to look forward to. And uh, my favorite thing, honestly, the phones get set down. The TV is off the whole time. The screens that we've all come to rely on at this difficult time in life. Instead, we focus on hands-on learning opportunities, get some kinesthetic learning involved. They're absolutely wonderful. And the fun is never over when the building is done because the finished projects offer plenty of time to do something fun and creative. So when you build a hydraulic arm and learn about hydraulics, you can then operate it and play. When you build a ukulele, you can then learn to play the ukulele. So it is a really, really amazing product. I absolutely recommend everything you need to make Steam seriously fun is delivered right to your doorstep. And you can get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on absolutely any line of KiwiCo's wonderful crates by using the code COZYROBOTS when you check out. So you go to kiwico.com and use promo code COZYROBOTS to get started with STEAM learning today. Also, friends, listen to me. Your password is probably terrible. Absolutely terrible. Why? Because you made it up. You tried to be clever. You thought that when you put an at sign instead of an A, and then the year you graduated from middle school, you would outsmart the hackers. And that's just not true. Password security is essential. Not a week goes by that I don't get messages from friends who've had accounts compromised by bad actors on the internet. That's why you need a password manager. And that's why I'm so excited to introduce NordPass as a sponsor of the Cozy Robot Show. NordPass is a new generation password manager where security meets simplicity because guess what? Passwords can be complicated and confusing and hard. And when you sign up and set up a NordPass account from the same experts who brought you NordVPN, well, guess what? It's going to get super easy to use secure passwords while you only have to remember your master password for your NordPass account. You know, I set up NordPass this week. It's a really great service that I enjoy. It allows you to organize your logins and private notes in a secure password vault that, guess what, is audited by independent security researchers. You can shop online really easily because not only will NordPass store your passwords and generate them for you, it'll also remember your credit card details securely. My favorite feature, honestly, is the way it allows you to share passwords securely. So if you have an account like a Netflix account that you share with family members in your household and you've been texting that account around and, oh, my gosh, that password is also a password you use on other accounts, that's not secure. But NordPass will let you share passwords securely while making them super convenient to use with features like autofill. You go to a web page, you click autofill once, boom. It signs you into your accounts for you. You don't have to remember anything. It's absolutely wonderful. So for a limited time, you can get the one year 
service of NordPass Premium with 50% off by going to nordpass.com slash cozy. Or you can use the word, the, the, the coupon code COZY uh, when you go to nordpass.com to sign up. I recommend it. Password managers are wonderful in this age where the internet can be such a frightening place. Okay, more questions. Uh, this one comes in from Instagram from Jamie Carraway, who says... <laughs> Uh, the question is probably not funny, but it, it's funny to me. <laughs> how worried should we be about murder hornets, and how can we help honeybees? That second part is actually quite serious. Okay, murder hornets are uh, these very large hornets uh, that are native to Japan, um, and there are some really frightening videos of them on YouTube where they go into bee colonies and they eat all the bees well you know you know a half dozen hornets take on thousands and thousands of bees and it's terrifying and it's scary plus murder hornets seem frightening to us um there is some real concern that murder hornets could uh you know make it to the united states and get a foothold here we are starting to find occasional nests and colonies in the pacific northwest um you know we'll see if they can uh, consistently make it through winters, which is a big question for murder hornets in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, they might do a little better further south, but murder hornets need a combination of, uh, you know, a relatively wet environment and a relatively warm environment. And so they might not be able to uh, overwinter in the Pacific Northwest. That, that is a big issue, not just with the murder hornets, but uh, species in general uh, becoming invasive on in other ecosystems because they get transported place to place that they couldn't otherwise get by people on purpose or on accident. So sometimes they hitch a ride in uh, shipping containers on sea or via air, uh, or they're brought as pets. Now, I don't imagine a lot of people get murder hornets as pets, but this kind of species spread is a big part of why we are having a major die-off of species right now. And one of the species having a hard time are honeybees. Now, most honeybees are not actually native to the United States. Of course, neither is like most grass. Uh, most of the grasses we have on this continent now are, are from other places as well. So I understand we kind of have an ad hoc ecology in our world today, but honeybees and other pollinators do need our help because we're starting to see things like colony collapse, collapse disorder uh, among um honeybees specifically, but all pollinators are struggling. Why? Well, a lot of reasons. One of them is pesticides. Another is habitat intrusion. And another is grass. We keep cutting down wild areas and building suburbs and then just pff, monoculture, green grass, no flowers. Um, climate change also is a hard time for honeybees. So how can we help? Well, a lot of ways. Number one, we can reduce our uses of pesticides both around our homes and in our agriculture. Uh, number two is we can get away from grass monocultures and start planting native flowers in and around our home areas. You know, if you were ever coming over to my house, you're going to find a lot of California native plants and flowers uh, in my garden. And I love how local birds and bees and other pollinators enjoy that garden. And why do I say other pollinators? Well, it's not just honeybees that are pollinators. Bumblebees and 
uh, some wasps and moths and all kinds of native insects play a big role in the pollinating process. So I try to create my own little personal oasis uh, for pollinators in around my area. I make sure I can extend the amount of season that my native plants can bloom by uh, watering them responsibly by hand, actually, in my case. Uh, and I also uh, set up um, basically insect drinking stations. I take uh, the, I don't know what you call these, when you put a pot inside a like a little dish so you can water it. I literally don't know what it's called, but they're they're kind of terracotta, and I put stones in them and then fill that with water. Why? Because bees and other pollinating insects can land on those rocks and go down to the water and drink without drowning. And so I just try to provide supplies, and then I also am pretty strict with the pest control company that manages, uh, you know, California annoyances with for us about whether or not they can spray around my home and where they can spray. I love for them to come and you know sweep out the the eaves of our home, uh, but I've also asked them not to spray uh, spray around it and certainly not spray in the flower gardens because these kind of pesticides impact honeybees and pollinators a lot worse than other species. Uh, and then where possible, we can support uh, agricultural practices. Uh, that do not use pesticides, there's not a large amount of pesticides in their uh, production. So, fantastic question. Let's help honeybees and all pollinators to thrive. Here's another question from Instagram. Uh, put a content warning on this one of transphobia. So, if anyone would be triggered by discussions of transphobia, this is your warning that you can go ahead and turn the volume down and come back on the next question. So Lucy's question is, how do you find the courage to confront a friend's transphobia knowing you could lose a friend? This is such a great question, Lucy, because it's right at the heart of empathetic skepticism. Because when I think about transphobia or sexism or racism and white supremacy or ableism, um, I'm empathetic, and that means I can't just think about the friend who's with me. I have to think about my friends who aren't, and a lot of my friends are trans people. And because I have empathy, it, I, it, I just don't have the emotional energy anymore to sit around quietly when transphobic comments are made. I just don't. Uh, because I have an empathy, what, for my trans friends who are marginalized by transphobia. You know, I would love to tell you that my um, interest in matters of social justice and marginalization came from some place of high ideal. Uh, and I would be very hypocritical if I said that. It's so personal for me. I don't like that my friends, people I know, have a different experience in life, that they are impacted by these phobias and isms we talk about so much. And I know that those systems are perpetuated by what I do and what I say and what I don't do and what I don't say. So there's a point in my life where I was an evangelical Christian who was a conservative, and I would have said that, you know, gosh, to, not to deny the gender that God gave you is sin. And so in those days, I actively supported and nurtured transphobia in society. And then I, you know, grew up 
<laughs> did some research, learned some more science, got a better, in my opinion, uh, understanding of Christian theology. And I, boy, I was like, wow, I was super wrong there. And so I stopped actively participating in those systems. But I also still didn't want to offend my friends and family who had beliefs I had five minutes ago. So when people would say transphobic things, I would just kind of get quiet, but I wouldn't say anything. This is what I mean. What we do and what we don't do creates these systems and creates these problems. So for transphobia to stop, we can't just ask trans people to advocate for themselves. We have to, in our personal relationships, confront these destructive systems. You know, if you look at the statistics around death by suicide among trans folk and trans teens especially, it's a real crisis. It's a real crisis. So I don't ever confront transphobia with the goal of losing a friend. Number one, I start with empathy. Um, I get why somebody doesn't understand matters of transgender identity. I did it for a long time. But we don't have to understand, you know, why trans people exist to understand that transphobia harms trans people. And so I usually center those conversations on that, not on the fact that I feel offended. Who cares if I feel offended? Not on the fact that I've grown and learned. Well, lucky for me, good for me. But instead, I focus those conversations on what really matters, and that is the harm that happens to trans communities when transphobia is allowed to foster and exist in our culture and in our society. And when you have the conversation from that angle, I don't feel like I, I, it's courageous at all. I don't feel like I need any bravery. I just need to be in touch with my own feelings. I need to have empathy for the person here who hasn't had the opportunity to grow or change or probably have personal relationship with trans people that would encourage that growth and change. And so then I don't need courage. I need empathy. And I need to say, wow, you know what you said just now was really upsetting to me. And I'd love to talk to you about why I have trans friends. And when you... <laughs> Thank you, Ruby, for the commentary with the flapping ears. My, my co-host and I is my dog, Ruby, who is right over here off camera. Um, and, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, gender being a choice or you don't understand, you know, what the problem with a gender reveal cake is or, you know, when you say you don't have a problem with trans people, but you don't think trans women should be allowed to compete in sports and all these kinds of things, then I can say, let's talk about how that impacts real people and why I've, I've got to set a boundary about, you know, those kind of comments in my presence because I can't sit aside and not say something when things like this come up. Why? Because people I love and care for in my actual life, it's not a hypothetical issue. And I don't, you know, I just don't, that doesn't sound like courage to me. That actually sounds like friendship. Friendship to who? My trans friends and to the person I'm talking to. Because the kind of people I uh, invest in a relationship with are curious people. They are people who are doing their work on themselves. And listen to me. If I'm your friend and I am saying things that encourage the marginalization 
or ostracization of a people group, and I don't know it, listen to me. I want to know. I want to be told. I want to learn, and I want to change, and I assume that all of my friends and family are the same way. And they tell me they're not. That's also good information for me to know so that I can set boundaries where appropriate. And that's just kind of where I am on that. And if someone said, listen, if you're going to set a boundary around me saying, I, you know, transphobic things, they, of course, would not self-identify as being transphobic. Uh, I can't make that accommodation. I would say, I understand. We'll just choose to spend less time together. And I'm comfortable with that uh, because there's, I'm just, I'm going to stand in solidarity with my trans friends. And that is a given in my life. What a fantastic question, Lucy. Thank you. Okay. Another question from Instagram comes from Jamie Cald, who says, why should we justify BDSM as an acceptable behavior when it is still violence? Okay. Um, BD, okay. Well, I don't know that we have to justify BDSM at all. <laughs> I mean, I'd start there about why we feel we would need to justify or not justify something we don't participate in. Uh, I don't participate in BDSM, so I don't have any need to justify it. If someone else wants to be involved in, in uh, that as part of their sexual expression, fine by me. Now, why would I say fine by me? Well, because uh, BDSM should involve consent for everybody involved, informed consent. Everybody should know what's involved. There should be safe words. They're actually, in most people I know who that's a part of their sexual practice, they have really deep patterns of communication around sexuality that, frankly, a lot of us could learn from. They communicate before, during, and after sexual activity. They make their needs and wants known. Um, and I'm okay with that. Now, you might say, you know, well, is this coming from a healthy place for everyone? I don't know. It's not my job to figure that out. That's the other people's job, the people doing it, to figure out that it's coming from a healthy place for them. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes to sex and sexual ethics, enthusiastic and informed consent are the bar for what is okay and not okay. And I say that. That's important. Enthusiastic and informed consent. Someone who doesn't have all the information cannot offer informed consent. Where there's a power dynamic or coercion, you can't have enthusiastic consent, right? That's why those two modifiers are important on enthusiastic informed consent. That's why cheating in no way counts as involving enthusiastic and informed consent because the person you're cheating on can't make informed consent to have other sexual partners involved uh, in your relationship, right? So I, I feel like, you know, on the one hand, we try to overreach into other people's sex lives and under-examine our own with most traditional forms of sexual ethic. Um, and why I'm advocating that we should be much more concerned with cultivating enthusiastic and informed consent in our lives and creating safeguards that create that for other people. I'm way more concerned with things like rape culture, which are very, very, very common in our society than I am with BDSM, which is basically 0% concerned 
with BDSM in cases where there's enthusiastic and informed consent for every person involved? Really good question. Um, really, really good question. And I would also say, like, you know, when you use the word violence, if if your sexual activity is involving uh, significant harm to your body that persists beyond um, the sexual encounter, there is probably room to have a conversation with a therapist. Um, and if in BDSM you are consenting to things you are not comfortable with to make your partner happy, then there's definitely not enthusiastic and informed consent there, and it would be very good to start setting some more firm boundaries. But that doesn't just apply to BDSM. That applies to everything in our relationships, especially the sexual components of our relationships. Very, very, very good question, Jamie. I love it. Okay. Another, so many Instagram questions tonight. Uh, very, very fun. Another one here uh, from TRF Shalman says, uh, what advice do you have for people in their 20s? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I don't mean to laugh. It is such a good question. It's such a sincere question. Uh, I laugh. I think, let me pay attention to that. I think I feel like a sense of the absurdity is actually masking a sense of shame because I feel like I don't have anything worth telling people in their 20s. So that's why I laughed at your very good question. That's frankly an honor to be asked. Uh, so I'm going to rephrase it in my mind because I have to convince myself I have the credibility to meaningfully respond to this question. Remember something I always say, every question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I would have told me in my 20s. I think that's a lot easier for me to do because there's a good chance that you in your 20s is simply a wiser and more put together person than I was in my 20s. Um, so if I, what, what I would have told myself in my 20s, your career is not actually that important. Do things you enjoy. Focus on making ends meet and cultivating quality relationships. I'd start there. Um, you won't be young forever. Learn to rest now. Um, hard conversations don't get easier when you put them off. Learn to tell people what you want and what you need. Encourage them to do the same. Other people's feelings are not your responsibility. Your feelings are not other people's responsibility. You can never go wrong being kind. Always communicate honestly and without hostility. Forgive yourself as quickly as you forgive other people. No matter what, it's going to be okay. That's what I would have told me if I were to see myself in my 20s. Um, for sure. Thank you. That's a great question. 
Okay. Uh, Billy Joe John John on Instagram said, <laughs> this is true. If there's one message you could give your younger self, what would it be? Just one? Believe women. Uh, Amac, Amac Ansons on Instagram says, is it ever appropriate to tell a friend that their parenting is toxic? Wow. Okay. Toxic is a great word when describing the impact any substance can have on an organism for describing the threshold at which a substance begins to cause harm to an organism when ingested or otherwise introduced into an organism's physiology. Toxic is a very evocative word when we talk about personality and relationships, but it is not particularly high in its fidelity, right? Toxic doesn't communicate much other than, in my opinion, there's a problem with something about you. So I would never tell someone they were toxic. I would never tell someone something about them was toxic. Now, if you are seeing severe maladaptive patterns in someone's parenting, that's a question. Uh, what do you mean? Is this parent abusive, engaging in patterns of abuse, physical, emotional, or sexual? or verbal, gosh, that's a difficult situation. Um, you either have to tell them or tell an authority figure. And if you tell them and they're not responsive, then you have to tell an authority figure. Children need to be protected from abuse. Do you just disagree with parenting styles? That's none of your business, in my opinion. Um, if you have a deep trust-based relationship with someone else, I like to get to a point in my close relationships where I know I can ask someone a question and they know they can ask me this question. And that question is, are you open to feedback or are you open to feedback on and then a specific issue? Then that person gets to say yes or no. If they say yes, they are inviting my advice or counsel into their life. If they say no, I do not get into their business because it is none of my own. I would be extremely, extremely reticent to tell a friend they had parenting problems if those problems fall short of abuse. Uh, that is That seems to me like a really easy way to get into patterns of codependency that get really unhealthy uh, really fast and frankly, to lose a friendship. Um, yeah. Again, abuse is one thing. Differences in styles, even maladaptive patterns are Completely a different thing. Uh, that's a good question, though. And I appreciate you asking it. Okay, wow. One hour later, and we went through a lot of questions tonight. I'll tell you right now, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I really missed Grace and Victory. I have gotten so used to talking to them as the show goes on uh, that this week, I loved your questions so much, and I love every time I get to talk with all of you, and I really miss Grace and Victory. I hope they get well soon. Uh, thank you so much for watching the Cozy Robot Show today. I'd like to encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you may be watching or listening. And I want to remind you that the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank... Well, first of all, the people who make the show possible, like each and every one of the Cozy Robots. I'll see you in just about 15 minutes on our Discord for the after party. If you'd like to learn how you can join the Cozy Robots, just go to CozyRobots.com. 
Show's been produced by Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management by Grace Vaughn. Design by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, for joining us tonight. And I can't wait to talk with you next week, hopefully with Grace and or Victory. Be well, friends. Talk to you soon. The Cozy Robot Show.